Hello, everyone, and welcome to the final day of the International Marxist University. My name is Josh Holroyd, and I'm an activist at Socialist Appeal, the British section of the International Marxist Tendency. This session will be on liberty through struggle, Marxism versus queer theory. But before I, but before I introduce this discussion, I have a few announcements. First, for anybody joining us today for the first time, I should explain why I'm pausing so often. The reason is that all sessions are being translated live into 12 different languages. So the speaker and all the comrades participating in the discussion will also have to pause. It might seem strange at first, but please bear with us. I would also like to make the following statement regarding the abduction of one of our comrades in Pakistan. Comrade Amin, an active member of the Progressive Youth Alliance in Karachi, was abducted from his home by the Rangers, paramilitary force in Pakistan on the 14th of July. And to this day, no one knows his whereabouts. In many cases before this, victims of the Rangers have been severely tortured during confinement, while many have lost their lives. We appeal to workers of the world and our comrades in different countries to hold protests against these barbaric crimes of the Pakistani state. You can write letters and emails to the Pakistani embassies in different countries, in personal capacity or on behalf of your organization. You can hold protests against it and post the videos on social media um, using the following hashtags, hashtag release Amin, hashtag stop state abductions in Pakistan, and hashtag IMU2020. You can post comments and views on social media about it while tagging the Prime Minister of Pakistan. And you can also tag BG Rangers Sindh, and the Home Minister of Pakistan. You can also organise discussions about this barbarism in your area of work and locality and spread this discussion more and more among people around you to inform them about the crimes of the Pakistani state. We demand the immediate release of Comrade Amin, or if there is any charge against him, he should appear in court. We similarly demand the release of all people abducted by the security forces in Pakistan. Or, failing that, they should be presented in the courts immediately if there are any charges against them. This is a basic democratic right of every human being, and we should fight for this right. And now we can begin the session. Thank you for your patience. Um, today, despite all the claims we hear about equality between the sexes and the freedom of sexuality, the oppression of people based on their gender and sexual orientation remain a fundamental and unavoidable part of the capitalist system. But where does this oppression come from and how do we eradicate it? Queer theory is a famous and influential answer to these questions from the world of academia. But does it really offer a way out of this nightmare for the oppressed? Luckily for us, Yola Kipchak, a leading activist from Defunka, the Austrian section of the IMT, is going to offer us an answer to these questions and more and set out a Marxist vision for the fight for liberation. So without any further ado, I will pass over to Yola. Uh, hello to all who are watching. Um, I hope everyone will enjoy this, today's discussion and I hope uh, everyone can also learn from it. I hope me as well. Uh, as Marxists, we take the struggle against all forms of oppression and discrimination very seriously. This is why we also take the theoretical debates on how to fight this oppression very seriously. Queer theory, the particular strand of theory we will be discussing here, emerged mainly in the United States in the 1990s among academic circles, particularly from feminist and gay studies and in connection with gay activism around the AIDS crisis at that time. 
Uh, originally an insulting term for homosexuals, queer was taken up and given a positive twist by the gay movement. Queer theory took up this term and deals with the question of persons that are outside of the norm. For example, homosexuality, transgender or intersexuality. And queer theory argues that what we see as normal and natural is actually created by power structures in society. That it is an oppressive fiction that serves the ruling order. The main premises of queer theory are, therefore, that biological sexes, gender identity and sexuality are all cultural fiction. It says that we must reveal this fiction and show its contradictions and parody it and thus change the discourse. Uh, discourse usually means language in all written and spoken forms, ideology, but also performances, uh, meaning everyday actions of people that follow this ideology in, in this theory. So how, so how did queer theory arrive at, at its premises? In the 1960s and 70s, a women's struggle, as well as gay struggle, was more influenced and linked to class struggle. This reflected the general upswing of class struggle and revolution in the world. For example, the Stonewall riots in 1969, where the gay community in the USA rose up against uh, brutal discrimination, clearly had radical implications with many activists holding anti-capitalist views. But social democratic and Stalinist parties did not fight consistently with the women, and in the case of L the LGBT community, ignored or even actively rejected them. In these parties, sexism and homophobia largely prevailed. So when the class struggle reclined over the following years after very serious defeats, this hardened the view of feminist activists that women's struggle must be led separately from class struggle. In, this, in practice, this, it was a shift, from, uh, a shift to institutionalized politics in the state apparatus with women's ministries, research centers on, on the one hand, and cultural circles focusing on individual experiences, language, and single-issue campaigns on the other hand. In feminism, the struggle against oppression shifted more and more from class struggle to a struggle between the sexes, i.e. against patriarchy. So oppression is explained here as a question of men versus women in, instead of exploited class versus ruling class. Mar Marxists, on the other hand, explain that class society was the historical reason for the emergence of women's oppression. And it's also uh, the root for the oppression of diverging sexualities. For the most part of our existence, humans did not live in class societies. The existence of a class of class societies requires a surplus product, something one class can enrich itself at the expense of another. In early societies where people had not yet the technical means to, produ to produce more than they needed for immediate survival, there was no systematic oppression either. But technological development led to agriculture, which was the basis for a surplus product and thus class society. Among many fundamental, many fundamental changes, it also meant that communities could raise more children. This in turn led to a more clear-cut division of labor between the sexes, although this in itself was not a class division, nor was it oppressive. But it fell together with the fact that the male-dominated dominated areas of work were also those where a surplus was produced. So while women as those who ensure the survival of the species were held in high, in, uh, high esteem before, over a, over a period of time, their economic role led to subordination. This shows that women's oppression is not accidental. Uh, the biological role of women as those who give birth does play a role. But it also shows that oppression is not naturally ingrained in the sexes. With increased wealth, there came also the wish of men to inherit this wealth to their own children, And this led to a control of female sexuality. 
Only through monogamy could men know who their own children were. Uh, it is thus the specific forms of family, monogamous family in class society, that led to oppression of sexuality, including diverging sexualities such as homosexuality. Capitalism inherited the, the oppression of women and the monogamous family from previous societies and adapted it to its own needs. Sexism and the institution of the family are very useful to the capitalists. Within the family, important repro reproduct reproductive work such as childcare and care of the elderly is done. Uh, and sexism and homophobia are further also used to diffuse workers' solidarity against their common enemy, the capitalist. This means that the capitalists have a great interest in upholding sexism and the oppression of women and sexual minorities. We can argue that as long as class society and with it the monogamous fam family exist, it will be impossible to fully overcome social discrimination based on sexual orientation or women's oppression. But feminist theory, and as we will see also queer theory, rejects the class contradictions as the central explanation for oppression. Instead, feminism looks for the reason of oppression in the relation between the sexes, i.e. in patriarchy. It follows that something in being male must be oppressive, while something in being female must lead to women's liberation. This means that the identity of a person became the key to struggle. But at the same time, most feminists rejected the biological explanation of, of oppression, rightfully, because after all, also the reactionaries defend sexism commonly with biological arguments that women are naturally inferior. In order to find a reason for oppression within the relationship, re relationship of the sexes uh, itself, but without having a class analysis, a crude dualism between biological sex and social gender was introduced. 15 minutes on the other. This, was, uh, this way they can assign different phenomena mechanically either to nature or to society, culture and psychology. This is what most famously Simone de Beauvoir uh, does in her book The Second Sex, for example. We do not disagree with the feminists in criticizing gender roles and how society puts pressure on people to fulfill them. However, feminist theory cannot explain the connection between sex and gender roles, which can only be understood by a complete analysis of class society. Feminist theory with doubling of sex and gender opens up a contradiction in its own analysis between matter and idea. Philosophically, feminist views often switch between a mechanical materialism and idealism, an unsolvable dualism, which in the last instance always turns out to be idealism. If it is not nature that is oppressive, it must be the culture or the male psychology or language and so on. The resulting practice is to fight sexism with ideas, individual improvement and language reforms instead of class struggle. Not only is this an impasse for struggle, it's also riddled with contradictions. So in the midst of all these debates uh, within feminism, queer theory emerged. Queer theory takes the feminist arguments to the extreme, but in a way to a logical, idealist conclusion. In 1990, Judith Butler published her book Gender Trouble, which is the most famous book ascribed to queer theory. Uh, she says that not only are social gender roles culturally created by the patriarchal system, but that biological sex is also culturally created. So she solved the feminist dualism of sex and gender by stating that both are only a product of society and discourse. So according to her, the ruling discourse, discourse in society is not only oppressive by saying, for example, women are weak, but uh, by defining women as women. The philosophical basis for this is the postmodern trend in philosophy, which rose to popularity in the 1970s in the universities. According to this idealist philosophy, the whole of reality is actually constructed by language. 20 minutes gone, Niola. Please leave a little bit more time for the translators as well. Sorry. For example, post-structuralist feminist Chris Whedon writes the following. 
language, far from reflecting a given societal reality, constitutes social reality. There is no meaning beyond language. This is what she writes. Um, and queer theory argues that language is power. Every category is a generalization. And thus, every generalization and every category or term is seen as a violent act of excluding those who don't fit in this category. Since science generalizes the patterns of nature, queer theory argues that science is also only a powerful discourse. Biology, including sexes, are thus seen as a cultural fiction. For many, this theory seems appealing because it does contain a grain of truth. It is true that in class society, science is not free from the ideology of the ruling class. There is a long list of examples how scientists try to prove that women are inferior, that they have smaller brains, or that homosexuals are dangerous and sick, and so on. But from this, it cannot be concluded, as queer theory does, that science can create reality free from the actual facts. We must correctly understand the relationship between matter and idea. As Marxists, we are materialists. Ultimately, everything, including our ideas and our consciousness, are material processes. Or, as Karl Marx wrote in the German ideology, the phantoms formed in the human brain are also necessarily sublimates of their material life process, which is empirically verifiable and bound to material premises. So this means that ideas can be wrong. They can be inaccurate or blurry reflections of reality that don't depict an accurate image. Ideas can also produce fantasies, formulate scientific theses yet to be tested out. In short, ideas can also be creative. But because ideas are a small part of material re reality, they can't raise themselves above the circumstances that created them. For example, just because humans want to believe that they can fly doesn't make them defy gravity. However, with the help of ideas, we can influence, manipulate and change reality within certain limits. So although we cannot make humans fly by pure will, we can, with ideas, build an airplane which then makes a human fly. Similarly, if we scientifically understand how sexes function, we can invent such things as hormone therapy that can manipulate secondary sex characteristics such as beards, breasts and so on. So only if our ideas correspond correctly with reality can they change it. In order to grasp reality, generalizations are necessary. And in order to do so, we must abstract from the many individual cases, for example, all the women in the world, and look at what their essence is, what makes them comparable. However, the mechanical view that dominates the natural sciences raises the general categories to a principle and demands that all of the complex reality complies with it. If you don't comply with the general average, something must be wrong with you. Queer theory takes this one-sided attitude as, our as a foundation for its criti criticism. In order to criticize the universal categories, which are seen as the cause for oppression, they look towards the individual as focus and starting point for everything. They take the contradictory and necessarily complex individual to prove that all categories are in a way incomplete to describe individuals, which is true. And But further, that they want to prove that all categories are therefore fictitious and wrong, which is not true. In fact, what queer theory says is that, this, that there is no objective truth. 30 minutes gone, one hour left. Every truth is only a fiction created by discourse, according to queer theory. But to say that there is no reality and no objective truth that we can know me means that there are no criteria whatsoever to say whether something is true or false. Sexism is, in today's society, without doubt, a powerful, powerful ideology or discourse, as queer theory would call it. 
but anti-sexism is also a discourse in society and one that is increasingly popular. Therefore, according to queer theory, both must be equally true. This shows how reactionary the conclusions of such a philosophical stance can be. By saying that there is no objective truth, you can only argue with morality or your personal feelings in favor or against something. And this is exactly what queer theory does. It takes the subjective identity and feelings as the basis to create truths. Of course, some truths are then seen as more true than others. For example, to say that there are, there are biological sexes uh, um, is seen as bad. But this can only be argued with individual point of views, not with objective criteria. By taking the individual as the starting point of understanding the whole world, biological sex, society's gender roles, and an individual's experience are all explained from the point of view from, of, of this individual, instead of from nature and society. They're all mashed together in one category, the individual gender identity. Their differentiation, origin, and their objective causes are thus blurred. But a person's identity, the human brain and consciousness, is a very complex thing. Genes and biology play a big role, but also education and individual experiences. All of these things can be explained materially. But our individual identity is a product of material circumstances and not the other way around. Our individual consciousness that does not create reality and thus can only within very narrow limits explain it. Just because a person doesn't, for example, feel like a man or woman doesn't mean that they don't have a distinct biological sex. Of course, Marxists recognize that reality is complex and categories do not fit all individual cases, also in case of sex and gender. There are cases that are not clear cut. There are cases of persons with different chromosomal combinations, such as XXX and XXY, for example. There are also persons who have either male or female reproductive organs, but they wish or need to live as the opposite gender and so on. It would be crazy to deny that these forms exist as part of the right wing do and as the gender roles in most societies also demand. It would likewise be crazy to claim that these people are worth less than those who can easily be categorized. And of course, we fully def defend the democratic rights of all people to lead their lives as the ident identity they choose. These intermediate forms certainly exist, but they do not constitute a third, fourth or fifth biological sex. Their existence does not change the fact that there are men and women, the two sexes which form the basis for sexual reproduction and that the large majority of the population can be categorized as either male or female. But most importantly, this fact in itself does not lead to the oppression and discrimination against intersex or trans people, for example. The existence of sexes, sexes or even of gender roles does not explain where oppression of sexual minorities and women comes from. But the argument of queer theory goes, language creates categories, and these categories are oppressive. Therefore, we must fight the categories. How? By showing their incompleteness, paradising them, uh, paradising them uh, by undermining them, and by creating new categories. This also explains why there are lists by queer theory advocates with more than 60 different genders. This includes genders such as demiboy, which describes a person who partially but not fully identifies as a man. Here, sex, gender roles, sexual orientation and preference are all mixed together in a big hodgepodge. 40 minutes gone. But these names don't help at all to understand where oppression comes from or even where sexes actually come from or what they are. If biological sexes are fictitious, why was exactly this line of division between men and women created and became so prominent? Why not, for example, the size of your ears or the color of your hair? If sex is only a cultural construct, how can you explain sexual reproduction? To say that sexes are not real also has logical consequences for political demands. 
if you deny the existence of biological sex, on what basis do you argue for gynecology, sex-specific contraceptives or hormone therapy? And how can you, for example, demand maternal leave for mothers? Of course, queer theory advocates usually are in favor of these demands, but their theory does not, in fact, support this argument. This shows the reactionary implications of a theory that rejects reality. But there are also um, serious negative consequences that concern more concretely the methods of struggle. In order to not repeat what queer theoreticians think as uh, the root of oppression, they say that they do not want to force anyone in a category and force to be represented or dominated by a person with another identity. The argument goes, since I can only speak for myself, or at best for my specific identity category, any unity in struggle is exclusive and oppressive. Unity is only purchased through violent excision, writes Judith Butler in her text, Merrily Cultural. Another queer feminist, Franziska Haug, uh, complains, she complains about it, the right to speak and fight is being decided depending on the identity of the speaker. Queer theory thus ends up doing exactly what they originally criticized. Identity politics, where defining and representing the category of your identity becomes the most important thing. It thus plays a direction, directly reactionary role by dividing the common struggle of all oppressed and diverting it into representational politics. At demonstrations and rallies against sexism, this can be seen when the list of speakers is carefully crafted according to different identity criteria. But whether a political perspective and the correct slogans are present is secondary or even irrelevant. This kind of representational politics can also very easily be used by the ruling class by having a quota of fear, queer or female representatives in, the par in parliament or by appointing a queer CEO, they can paint themselves as progressives while at the same time brutally exploiting workers of all identity. The problem with representational politics is that it doesn't seek the basis and roots of oppression in class society, but in identity. Since queer theory argues uh, that it's so-called identities that oppress us, identities must, must also be used to fight oppression. However, being queer in itself is not progressive, nor is it reactionary. Identity is not the tool with which we can change the system. Being queer cannot dissolve the bourgeois family, nor can non-heterosexual relationships undermine capitalism. On the contrary, sections of the bourgeoisie in a number of countries are willing to give concessions to LGBT rights, such as gay marriage, uh, when it helps their image or when they want to get votes with this. As of today, about 30 countries or territories have legalized same-sex marriage, mostly in Europe and the Americas. But the economic reality of capitalism means that also queer couples have to subordinate to the bourgeois role of the family. For example, they will have to find the time to do housework and care for children. To do so, they must then rely on part-time jobs or one partner working less, i.e. being more economically dependent, dependent on, on the other partner. So the freedom of, for example, gay marriage is only the freedom to be as oppressed as the rest of the working class in this regard. At the same time, the bourgeoisie will also use homophobic and anti-trans anti ideology to cater to their conservative clientele. 50 minutes they, gone, 40 left. They will use it to divide the workers and to strengthen the bourgeois family when necessary. So even though gay rights increased over the last decades, decades and, and there's a generally more positive image of queer people in, in some countries, reactionary, reactionary ideology is always kept alive as a backup. In 2019, Forbes magazine wrote an, in an, wrote in an article, uh, nine of the biggest, most LGBTQ supportive corporations in America 
gave about $1 million or more each to anti-gay politicians in the last election cycle. These companies include, for example, UPS, uh, General Electric, Home Depot. This clearly shows that the capitalists will not fight for LGBT equality. They simply do whatever is most profitable to them. Corporations will superficially produce rainbow-colored merchandise to attract LGBT consumers or consumers who deem LGBT rights important. But they will always be just as willing to support capitalist politicians that maximize their chances for profit, even if they're um, anti-LGBT. To believe that true equality can be achieved within capitalism is false. This illusion actually helps the ruling class, which then can take up some, in their eyes, harmless reforms without having to do away with true oppression. Of course, we support all positive reforms and legal rights. Actually, a struggle for equal rights for everybody is even necessary to unite the working class in the first place. But to limit the struggle to these reforms will not solve our problems fundamentally. At the same time, exactly because there is real inequality in society, ideologies that use scapegoats and blame the inequality on a section of the working class can gain some support with more backwards layers of the masses. We must therefore argue at all times against sexist prejudices and discrimination. Only this way can we achieve the necessary unity among the working class to get rid of the roots of oppression. 55 minutes gone. Please leave a bit of a longer break for translators. Thanks. For this, however, queer theory does not give us the necessary means because it can't even explain the roots of oppression. As I said, queer theory claims that power structures and power discourses create oppression in society. In queer theory, power is a complex and obscure network omnipresent in society. The concept of power that queer theory advocates, advocates is borrowed from the French philosopher Michel Foucault. Foucault writes in his book History of Sexuality the following. Power is everywhere, not because it embraces everything, but, it beca but because it comes from everywhere. Power is not an institution and not a structure. Neither is it a certain strength we are endowed with. It is the name that one attributes to a complex strategical situation in a particular society. What is it supposed to mean that power is a complex strategical situation? This explanation is no explanation at all. It basically says that every single person produces and reproduces power by using words and by acting according to society's expectations. Not only does this not explain why some people are more powerful than others or why certain forms of oppression exist, it is also very useful to blame every single individual for there being power in society. For example, they can then say, we're all at fault for oppressing women by acting as if they're women. This way, the true reason for oppression is obscured And instead, every person is in a way an oppressor. For instance, it is often said that non-queer workers are supposedly profiting from the oppression of queers. While it is true that men have higher wages than women and do not suffer from the very serious discrimination that queer people suffer in their everyday life. It is wrong to say that this discrimination is in their interests. 60 minutes gone, half an hour. Because if one sector of the working class is oppressed, This automatically weakens the common united struggle for better, for better conditions. If one sector of the working class receives poor wages and bad treatment, this opens the door for capitalists to lower working standards for all workers. Instead of fighting against those who are actually in power and who exploit and oppress us, 
This leads us instead to argue about whose identity is more oppressive. Queer theory is therefore an idealist set of ideas that rejects the class analysis as fundamental explanation for oppression, but doesn't offer an explanation on its own. It is not only useless for our emancipation, but actively harmful. By dividing the united movement of the working class, and because it can easily be taken up by the ruling class to make them seem progressive while continuing oppression and exploitation. It can also be taken up by reformists to give them a radical touch without leading true struggles uh, for, for reforms and freedom. As Marxists, we therefore reject queer theory, but we do not at all reject the struggle against the oppression of women and people who identify as queer. On the contrary, we see this struggle as an absolute necessity for our cause in order to unite the working class. We cannot tolerate discriminatory behavior amongst uh, our working colleagues and comrades. We must patiently explain why this helps to exploit all of us and why it is in our own interest to fight against all forms of, of oppression. In an actual united struggle, the working class and youth can experience on their own what unites them. This was, uh, for example, vividly shown in the recent Black Lives Matter protests. It would have been fatal to explain in these protests that all white people should go home, that because of their identity, they will never be able to truly fight racism. This would have had the effect of estranging many people who stood in solidarity and actively uh, participated in the movement. While queer theory argues that unity is always oppressive, we, on the other hand, must focus particularly on what unites us in struggle. Because exactly in a common struggle, people learn also to overcome their prejudices that they may have. By standing shoulder to shoulder, discriminatory attitudes will be fought far more efficiently by, than by educational projects or language reforms or by campaigns filtered by the capitalists. If we consciously use our strength in, by uniting in struggle, we can expropriate the capitalists, take their means of power into our own hands. Because as Marxists, we have a materialist concept of power. If you own the factories and the media, you can exploit workers and print ideologies that help your position. This is power. That's why power is not a complex network of discourses where everyone is a culprit, but it is the power of a ruling class profiting from the oppression of the exploited class. Our optimism is drawn from the fact that we are the class that creates all the wealth in society and that we are actually the majority. We can take power by taking control over the means of production, such as factories, banks, land, and so on. And this will eradicate the material basis of oppression, including the bourgeois family. And this can open the way for the true emancipation of all human beings. Thank you. Thank you very much, Yola, for that excellent introduction to the discussion. I'm pleased to say we have time before the break to take in one intervention. And that will be from Alessio Marconi in Italy. But before I bring Alessio in, if comrades are interested in learning more about this topic, Yola has written a really fascinating article on this question for the In Defense of Marxism magazine, uh, which is a quarterly theoretical publication of the IMT, available from well-read books, where you can also pick up lots of books on Marxist philosophy if you're interested in reading further. But without further ado, I'll hand over to Alessio. Thank you, Josh. And good morning or good afternoon, everyone. Well, Yola, in her leaders, uh, dealt very effectively with the ideas uh, of queer theory. But honestly, I barely would call a theory, probably rather a mixture of uh, confused ideas, often contradictory to each other. But on the other hand, this is a characteristic of all uh, postmodern theories. 
that in fact, instead of arming for action, which should be the purpose of the theory, they disarm for action. So it comes as no surprise that the ruling class does not fear these theories and also finance them in the universities and instead tries to discredit Marxism by saying that it does not deal with the problem of gender and sexual oppression. But it's the very contrary. Marxists support all the struggles against oppression, but also Marxism analyzes the material, biological, economic, and social basis of these oppressions in order to effectively abolish them. An example of this was the Russian Revolution in 1917, when workers took power into their hands. That revolution changed the lives of millions, not only in political and economic terms, but in regard to the family as well. The Soviet government granted the women the same rights as men, legalized divorce and abortion, and promoted the intensive development of social services to provide the economic basis for liberation from family duties. Nurseries, public canteens, laundries, hospitals. At the same time, homosexuality was decriminalized decades before many advanced capitalist countries. The position of the Bolshevik party was that sexual behavior belongs to the private sphere and as such was not to be sanctioned or regulated unless, of course, it harmed others. Five minutes gone. Georgi Chicherin, who was openly gay, was appointed as Commissar for Foreign Affairs in 1918. So, such a situation was unparalleled anywhere else in the world. So the traditional family began to be broken up by social changes. Men and women were called on to participate in social life, and the youth were in a certain measure freed from traditional family authority. However, uh, these uh, radical changes opened up by the revolution, even in family and sexual relations, well, came up against uh, the problems uh, caused by the isolation and uh, uh, backwardness uh, uh, that the revolution was facing. So n not the will, but material resources were too limited to uh, build an alternative. Often public services were uh, uh, of uh, low quality. And, and so there was also a tendency to return to the old family structure. And, and in this process, uh, at the very same time, the bureaucratic deformation that led uh, to Stalinism began to take place, breaking with the ideas uh, of Marx, Engels, uh, Lenin, and Trotsky, and the October Revolution. And so given the lack of material base for developing a family and also emotional relationship on a more advanced social level, and uh, uh, given that the traditional family made a comeback. And the Stalinist regime saw in that uh, and in the comeback of the traditional uh, morals a source of stability for the regime, in particular as an instrument for strengthening the idea of authority. And this process also changed attitudes uh, towards uh, homosexuality. Uh, and uh, in 1933 and 34, the prohibition of male homosexual relations was restored.
Ten minutes gone, five minutes left. In 1935, that divorce was uh, severely restricted. In 1936, abortion was once again made illegal. In uh, his book, uh, The Revolution Betrayed, Trotsky explained that the dogma of family had become uh, the cornerstone of this uh, new uh, Stalinist uh, so-called socialism. And uh, homosexuality, seen as a threat to the family, had become now a vice of bourgeois decadence. So this homophobic position later deeply infected the Stalinist parties uh, on an international level. Geopardizing what should have been a naturally developing uh, gay movement, one, uh, such as one interlinked with the uh, working class uh, and revolutionary movement itself. And it, it had a, a very bad effect, especially in uh, the late 60, 60s and 70s. Uh, later on, uh, uh, these parties uh, changed partially the position, but mostly to assume um, a reformist view of the struggle for civil rights, mirroring, in fact, the reformism uh, of their political program. 13 minutes gone. And leaving ground... Uh, also to postmodernist theories, and in some cases adopting them altogether along the last uh, two or three decades. So it is not surprising that this, these theories gained ground in a period of, uh, of lull in, a, in, in the class struggle, where the, 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 uh, well, the action of the working class and the real possibility of overthrowing capitalism uh, was not uh, uh, so by uh, by the uh, uh, LGBT movement. But this is radically changing now. We have in front of us years of, uh, of uh, uh, profound uh, uh, class struggle. And it will be a new point of reference for all the oppressed at the condition that the ideas uh, of uh, genuine Marxism can be reached by these layers. 15 minutes gone. As Yala was saying, we need to overthrow capitalism, take over the means of productions, and use uh, them in a planned and harmonious uh, way for the collective needs of society. Housework needs to be socialized, and the care and education of children must be guaranteed and, and of high quality. And working hours should be reduced so that everyone has the time and energy to live one's life. This is possible. And on this material basis, we will be able to break with the moral categories perpetuated by the bourgeoisie in terms of the structure of the family and sexual orientation and so on. We will be able to throw patriarchy and homophobia into the dustbin of history. And everyone will be able to freely express their own sexual and emotional feelings. Our task is to make it possible and then deciding how this will be done. That will be the task uh, for the future generations. Thank you. Thank you very much, Alessio, for that interesting intervention. We'll now take a short break and reconvene at three o'clock. See you then. Hello and welcome back to the session on Liberty Through Struggle, Marxism versus Queer Theory. The next comrade who will participate in the discussion is Sam Ashton from Britain. Hi, comrades. Uh, I wanted to build on uh, Yola's excellent introduction. 
by outlining uh, the Marxist of LG oppression, an explanation that the bankruptcy of queer theory is unable to offer. As materialists, we understand ideology, which includes moral codes and attitudes towards sexual behaviour, are the product of material conditions. This can be seen by the vastly different attitudes towards homosexuality and gender roles in different societies throughout history. The determining factor in history is the production and reproduction of the essentials of life. That means the production of the means of existence and of human beings ourselves. In the very earliest human societies, there was hardly any regulation of sexual behaviour, and even incest was common. It was natural selection and survival of the fittest that eventually produced a realisation that abstinence from incest produced a stronger tribe. So we see here that the very earliest regulation of sexual behaviour in human history occurs as the product of material conditions. Homosexual behaviour and gender variance was actually common throughout pre-class societies. And even in early class societies, such as those based on slavery, homosexual, uh, homosexuality was also permissible. But it was re- regulated by a strict sexual code. For example, in ancient Greece, free male citizens were allowed to indulge in homosexual behaviour, but women and slaves were forbidden. This moral code flows from the mode of production. The role of women, uh, even free ones, was simply the production of children, hence their strict sexual subjugation to their husbands. Sex among slaves was only to be permitted insofar as it would produce more slaves. But in a slave society, male citizens having homosexual relations pose no threat to the mode of production. Five minutes gone. The rise of feudal societies brought with it more stringent sexual codes. Under feudalism, this was to reinforce the continued male domination of women. There was an entire moral code limiting sexuality to the male-female nuclear family, which had become the base unit of production. So although homosexuality and gender variance was generally forbidden in feudal societies, it was rarely singled out as a particular crime. Homosexual acts were just one of a host of forbidden sexual practices. This stringent code of sexual morality, which if you broke often meant death, was a weapon of social coercion used to terrorise and control the peasant masses. But it wasn't till 1869 and the growth of capitalism that the term homosexual first appeared in discourse. And this is no accident. It is because the systemic oppression of homosexuals arose from the social and economic needs of the capitalist society and the bourgeoisie. In 1885, the first specifically anti-male homosexuality law was introduced in Britain, and other imperialist countries followed a broadly similar pattern throughout this period. These laws were then spread across the world through imperialism and colonisation. So anti-gay laws in ex-colonial countries today generally date from this time. And the appearance of this systemic, systematic oppression of LGBT people under capitalism is not accidental. The reason for it lies in the means of production and reproduction of labour under capitalism. As Yola explained, capitalism utilises the family as a social unit for the reproduction, physical maintenance and early education of labour power. The bourgeois family is a monogamous, heterosexual, child-producing and rearing unit. Ten minutes gone. 
So to reinforce the family as an institution, capitalism has developed a set of sexual and moral codes which maintain it as the basic unit of production. So any sexual behaviour that could be seen to undermine the family was rigorously outlawed under capitalism. This is the material basis uh, for LGBT oppression. But like any other oppression, it also acts as a useful tool to divide and terrorise the working class. For example, it's no accident that a vile campaign of hate against trans people is being whipped up in the UK now at a time of economic crisis. It's just one way in which the capitalist class is attempting to divide the working class and distract it from the real cause of its problems. Just as we understand racism was developed as a means to justify the existence of slavery, but has continued to exist long after the abolition of slavery, the ruling class will continue to prop up homophobia and transphobia for as long as capitalism exists. But the route to liberation for us LGBT people isn't through defying categorization as the proponents of queer theory suggest. 13 minutes gone. But a militant struggle with our allies in the working class to smash this rotten system. Every progress in terms of rights for LGBT people has been won through joint struggle with the Labour movement. In Britain, of course, it was a Labour government that legalised homosexuality and introduced same-sex marriage. But this formal legal equality hasn't abolished LGBT oppression as a whole. It's only when the working class takes control of society that everyone will be free to express their sexuality and gender as they wish. Thank you, comrades. Thanks very much, Sam. It was really interesting. Next, we'll take Marie Fridriksson from Denmark. Uh, when we speak about queer theory, I think it's quite clear that it can attract a lot of radicalized young people because it answers all the, all the arguments of the right wing that oppression should be natural, that women belong in the kitchen and that men are natural leaders. And we are obviously against these kind of arguments. There's nothing natural about oppression. But it mustn't let us to, to throw the baby out with the bathwater. We, we don't think that queer theory offers any answers to these arguments, to these, to these arguments of the right wing. And also that it doesn't offer any way to, to fight oppression. If you look at queer theory, it's uh, philosophically uh, different from Marxism. Uh, what the, what Judith Butler says, and, and queer theoreticians says, and, and it can be a bit difficult to understand, but they actually say that, that biological sex doesn't exist, it's a social construct. Uh, it's an idealist uh, philosophy, queer theory. As Marxists, we, we say there is a material base to oppression and that biological sex do exist. And, and why is it important? Because it can seem easier to just stay out of the debate because it's quite toxic and a lot of emotions, quite obviously, is, is involved in this. First of all, I, I want to make clear that we, we fight for the, for the right of everyone to be as they want to be. But we need to go into the philosophical basis of, of this theory because the philosophical base is what lays the grounds for the fight. And I think when we look at queer theory, it can seem it can seem very difficult when you read Judith Butler, and it can seem very clever. But I think you should ask some very basic questions that they are not able to answer. If if uh, how how did the discourse how did oppression of women arise? If there is no biological sex, there is no men and women. Why did it develop the way it did, and not in another way? 
And and if men and women doesn't exist, how come half the population is has been oppressed for thousands of years? If you read Butler, she says that she she doesn't uh, think that there has been a time where there was no oppression of women. Five minutes gone. She ridicules Friedrich Engels and other uh, socialist feminists for their different attempts to localize moments or structures in history or culture that establishes gender hierarchies, is, is what she says. So in my opinion, she actually ends up opening the floodgates to the arguments of the right wing, the same arguments that the queer theory are supposed to, to go against about oppression being natural, because she says there has been no time before oppression, and therefore, sorry, and therefore it seems natural. That's the way it has always been. And, and she has no other explanation. They have no other explanation why it is this way. And she speaks against the findings of, of Friedrich Engels and also new studies that actually shows that there has been societies where women were not oppressed, as Jola explained. And that also means that, that Judith Butler and the queer theoreticians, they have no solutions on how to fight oppression. The only concrete solution that Butler suggests is, is to be drag in order to show the limitations of, of the present discourse and expand normality. But they actually say that you cannot remove oppression. You can only try to, to expand the, the, the discourse. But it's, it's all symbolic. It's all trying to change within the existing society. And to change the words, it doesn't change the basic structures of, of oppression. And you might change the, word, the, the way that we speak about things. But as long as the basic structures of, of oppression exist, you will just get new words who express the old meaning, the old oppressive meaning. So I would say... Contrary to the intentions of most of those who call themselves queer theoreticians, that it ends up playing a counter-revolutionary role. It makes it makes all these radicalized youth look at, at the surface, at at only the symptoms of this rotten system, the words, the, the discourse, and not the foundations of it. And as Jola explained, Ten minutes gone. That, that they also say that that oppression is is. Um, inherent in all of us. We are all part of, of upholding oppression. It focuses the attention of all these young people wanting to change society into guilty conscience, trying to figure out how they are part of upholding oppression instead of actually mobilizing them into the actual fight against oppression, which is a fight against this rotten system of capitalism, which is the basis of all these kind of oppressions. Thank you. Thanks very much for that, Marie. Uh, next we will have Ilva Vinberg from Sweden. Take it away, Ilva. Okay, thank you, Josh. Um, as Jola has explained, the fact that queer theory sees oppression as rooted in discourse or norms can have quite reactionary consequences. And that is very clear when you look at how quite a few queer feminists view the question of prostitution. For example, there's an organization called Feminists for Sex Workers. And in their manifesto, they have this to say on the question of prostitution. Um, they say, we respect sex workers' decision to engage in sex work. As feminists, we reject misogynist statements according to which sex workers sell their bodies or sell themselves. So what they think is that most prostitutes have ended up um, in the sex trade according um, to their own free will, or so-called free will. And thus, the struggle is not to end prostitution. 
um, they don't see a problem with prostitution. The struggle is to make people just view it as a normal job, as any other. Uh, Don Kullik, one of the most prominent queer theorists in Sweden, he takes this a step further. He argues that both um, sex workers or people who sell sex and those who buy sex are stigmatized in society because they deviate from the sexual norms in society. Their solution is legalize prostitution, unionize sex workers, and work to improve their working conditions. This completely ignores the reality of sex trafficking, child prostitution, and the many different reasons behind why women and children end up in prostitution. For example, out of an estimated 20 million commercial prostitutes in India, 16 million uh, women and girls are victims of sex trafficking. Five minutes gone. In 2016, 3.8 million adults and 1 million children were victims of forced sexual uh, exploitation around the world. In general, it's utter desperation and poverty that forces women and children into prostitution. And they're preyed upon uh, by those who make huge sums of money off of the sex trade. The UN estimates that trafficking is the second biggest source of illicit profits in the world after the drugs trade. These queer theories are completely blind to this, as they are in general in, with reality. Locked up in their ivory towers, they view the world and the despair of exploited human beings as simply interesting phenomena to be observed and analyzed for the fun of it. I recently read a story um, about a village in India, Chitrakut in Uttar Pradesh, where poor tribal families have to send their 12 to 14 year old daughters to work in illegal mines. And their bosses only agree to pay these young girls uh, wages if they also sell sex. There are many more stories like this. But even if one was to exclude everyone who are sold, abducted or forced into prostitution by economic necessity, you still won't have the rosy picture of the grown woman who out of her own free will enters into sex work as the queer feminists would like to paint it. In Sweden, as in many other countries, girls as young as 13 to 14 end up in prostitution through internet forums, where they're gradually lured into it, maybe not always out of strictly economic necessity. 10 minutes gone. But there are always other issues at hand, like mental health issues, for example. Prostitution is not a job like any other, but in general is more like slavery. The queer feminists talk about unionizing sex workers. They have clearly no concept of what class struggle actually means. Are they going to organize 12-year-olds in India, 14-year-olds in Sweden, women in brothels and go on strike? Those women and children would simply lose their customers or be kicked out. Now, radical feminists and, and queer feminists that disagree with this approach, uh, they consider themselves to be superior. But what do they have to offer as a solution? Many of them hail the so-called Swedish model on prostitution, where the act of selling sex is legal, but buying sex and running brothels is illegal. But as many have pointed out, the Swedish law on prostitution has only led to far more dangerous working conditions, 
where prostitutes are forced to carry out their work in more underground conditions. And very, gone. and very little resources are invested to help women and girls leave prostitution. In the end, all radical feminists and those queer feminists that would agree with them, all they have to offer is the same idealism as queer feminists. We have to change people's ideas. They say we have to make men understand that it's wrong to buy a woman's body. But you have to understand where these ideas come from. Prostitution is deeply ingrained in the capitalist system, rooted in women's oppression and upheld by the capitalist system. Capitalism finds many different ways to profit off of sexism through pornography, the sex trade, the beauty industry. 15 minutes gone. Please stop. And capitalists, politicians, other representatives of bourgeois institutions are often themselves the most frequent customers of prostitution. Hypocritically, many of the politicians that call themselves feminists um, are pushing women into prostitution through the policies of cuts and attacks against the living standards of the working class. The answer to this question cannot be found in changing this or that law or a so-called new discourse. To end prostitution, we must end all of the causes of it, and that requires an end to capitalism. Thank you. Thank you very much, Ilva. Uh, next, uh, the last intervention we'll have in this discussion will be from Laurie O'Connell in Britain. Thanks, Josh. Um, today, transgender people in particular are told that re-theorizing sex and gender is vital to our liberation. But the truth is that transgender people are not just faced with oppressive discourses, but with an oppressive reality. In 2018, a report published by a major LGBT charity in the UK (laughs) found that 25% of transgender people had experienced homelessness, 25% had been discriminated against by landlords, and one in eight transgender workers in the UK had been physically attacked at work. Whilst as Marxists, we understand that theory can be very powerful, we know that this is only the case as long as it explains the real lived experience of people. Otherwise, we can make up whatever narratives we want, but they will have no impact on the real world. However, we should be fair. The correctness of any idea can be tested in practice. And we can do this with queer theory. Queer theory claims that if we can change the discourse, we can change reality. Well, the discourse has certainly changed. The argument put forward by queer theorists that biological sex does not exist has gained traction, especially in academic circles. Has this changed things for the better? In the last two years, both in the UK and across the world, the situation for transgender people has got much worse. In the UK alone, anti-trans hate crimes have surged by 81% in 2019. At the end of May, the Hungarian government outlawed legal gender recognition for transgender people. In the US, it is now legal for a doctor to refuse to treat transgender people, a policy which will undoubtedly result in death. Five minutes gone. This does not come out of nowhere, but from a targeted political attack against trans people, as Sam has already explained, when people's trust in the government is declining, And when the general crisis of capitalism is stirring up anger and frustration, bourgeois governments will do anything in order to redirect that anger into safer channels. It also helps that in an age of austerity, governments across the world need to make cutbacks. They can no longer afford to provide healthcare for transgender people. Instead of being open about the fact that they don't want to spend the money, isn't it catchier and cheaper to claim that transgender people are either predators, liars or deluded victims? And all this is underlain by an even more vital material truth. 
As Sam already explained, capitalism requires the bourgeois nuclear family to reproduce the working class. This narrative does not come out of nowhere. It has a basis in reality to argue that it can be changed by performing gender differently or by questioning the reality of biological sex misses the point. At the same time as the situation of transgender people has been worsening, the popularity of queer theory has been climbing. More books and academic publications mentioned the term queer theory in 2019 than any year previously. I think this proves that the publication of more books will not solve the problem of oppression. In fact, conflating an incorrect theory with the genuine struggle against oppression does more harm than good. Recently, we have seen conservatives in the UK calling for tougher regulations on transgender people under the guise of attacking queer theory. Ten minutes gone. In the words of a British Member of Parliament, Danny Kruger, in an article published this week, sex is the business of the state. The distinction between maleness and femaleness is a fundamental building block of our society. For somebody to cross the boundary between the two is a big deal, properly requiring the permission of the state. And he concludes, to concede the demands of the extreme trans lobby that sex is not fixed in biology is to sell the past. We would be in Wonderland or 1984, where truth is whatever the people in charge decided. Now, he clearly has no genuine concern for transgender people. But we must admit the clearly incorrect idea that biological sex does not exist has become an easy way to attack the entire movement for transgender rights. We must not allow these ideas to become the only ideas in the movement against the oppression of trans people. 13 minutes gone. Transgender people are an oppressed minority whose lives are often ravaged by poverty, homelessness and discrimination at work. They are not simply interesting topics for academics to theorise over and advance their own careers. Instead, we must put forward a Marxist explanation that aims to remove the material basis for that oppression. Of course, ending capitalism will not end prejudice overnight. But as the saying goes, if somebody wants to oppress me, that's their problem. If they have the power to oppress me, that's mine. In a world where everybody has the right to a home and health care, where the capitalist state and the bosses do not have the right to terrorize transgender workers. 15 minutes gone. Please sum up. Many problems will be solved almost immediately. Problems that queer theorists have never proposed a single solution to. I think I'll leave it there. Thank you very much, Laurie. And thanks to all the comrades who've spoken. I think it's been a great discussion. I'll now hand back to Yola to reply to the discussion. Take it away, Yola. Uh, Thank you to all comrades for their excellent interventions. The many concrete examples and figures uh, that were given are very helpful to understand the oppression of LGBT people in more depth. Um, As Sam showed in his historical overview of sexuality in class society, The oppression of homosexuals and other diverging sexualities and identities took on many different forms in history. Now, queer theory takes these changes over time to argue that there is actually no natural sexuality whatsoever. For example, Eve Cedric Kosofsky, another well-known writer for queer theory, argues that the terms homo and heterosexuality only emerged in the 19th century, And she concludes that there was no homo or heterosexuality before this time. There was only indefinable sexuality in all kinds of directions and and forms, according to her. This is completely in line with the idealist argument that ideas and language create reality instead of the other way around. 
But as Marxists, we want to look at the underlying forces and laws in society that lie behind the ideas and the morals of society. This way, we can understand that the different forms of oppression, regulation and sanctioning of sexuality <coughs> have a material cause in class society. Alessio gave, gave a very good analysis of uh, the Russian Revolution to show this and how the Bolshevik Bolsheviks in the early days of the Russian Revolution implemented reforms for public welfare, cooking, and so on. And this way started the dissolution of the family. He also showed that how the degeneration of the revolution stopped this development. This clearly shows that Marxists do not believe that sexism, women's oppression, and discrimination will disappear automatically by expropriating the capitalists, as it is often claimed by very superficial criticisms of Marxism. And as uh, Laurie also pointed out, but this materialistic understanding of family is an important key for understanding, which was fundamentally explained in Frederick Engels' book, Origin of the Family, the State and the Private Property. The analysis of the family and of the private sphere was also, a was also central for radical feminists in the 60s, 70s and so on, although they didn't uh, draw the correct conclusions from it. And at least all feminists that I have ever read, and, and that's a few. They all reject Engels' analysis for this or that reason. And as Marie pointed out, queer theory also rejects Engels' historical analysis. In queer theory, the question of the family, which is so central for our understanding of oppression, doesn't play any role at all anymore. Uh, the individualized view on society is visible here in particular. And this is connected to the question of prostitution. Uh, and, and it's a good example for these views, uh, like Ilva showed. I've heard so often from queer and feminist circles and, and papers and articles that prostitution is supposed, uh, prostitution supposedly defies the rigid sexual moral morality in our society and that it's a, that it's a way to defy the monogamous family, to defy, yeah, and uh, it's a way, uh, that it's a way of individual freedom and empowerment. Now, while this might be true for a very tiny minority, This is not at all what prostitution as a general phenomenon is in our society. In the matter of prostitution as well, the individual uh, and exceptional is raised to a general principle by queer theory and, and some feminists. In Vienna, actually, the question of prostitution is, is one of the two uh, big reasons why we don't have a united demo on, on Women's Day, March 8th every year. We have se separate marches of feminists and, and queer people organized. Because the queer organizers find the anti-prostitution position of the radical feminists offensive. The other reason is that the feminists only allow non-women in a specific LGBT bloc and don't allow so-called cis men at all at the demonstration. Ten minutes gone. No, they allow trans women in a, a specific bloc, uh, but they don't allow cis men at all at the demonstration. Which just shows that they're both wrong. So back to prostitution, in, in reality, violence and rape are not the exception, but the rule in, in prostitution. A survey from 2003, I think, uh, for example, showed that 75% of prostitutes have been raped and 82% have experienced physical assault. So this is hardly a normal job. And it shows the cynicism of the position of queer feminists um, in this regard. Already Engels pointed out correctly that prostitution or infidelity, far from being an act of resistance against the monogamous family, they're actually um, its necessary counterpart. And the monog monogamous family cannot simply be abolished, just like the state cannot simply be abolished. It must be replaced by something, uh, which is graphically uh, illustrated in Trotsky's writing on the family in the Soviet Union. 
which I recommend everyone to read. Um, it's Problems of Everyday Life. I only have the German version here. Um, this is why we demand, for example, the socialization of care and housework, a demand that can never be fulfilled in capitalism, even less uh, during a crisis. As Laurie explained, the capitalists are currently going in the exact opposite dire direction. Through cuts in healthcare and overall austerity, the material basis for the family is strengthened. And at the same time, the propaganda and attacks on women and trans rights is being stepped up in many countries. But over the last years, we have also seen huge movements against such attacks, some of them specifically dealing with women or LGBT rights, such as the big protests in favor of same-sex marriage in Ireland, the powerful movement against violence against women in Mexico, the struggle against more restrict, uh, restrictive uh, abortion laws in Poland, Poland a few years ago, and the big women's strike movement on Women's Day in many countries, uh, particularly in Spain. In these movements, different ideas and leaders are being tested out. And we can see how in practice the identity politics of division are being pushed aside by the action of the masses. For example, uh, while the feminist leaders of the women's strike movement wanted the strike to be led by women only, which would have in effect meant that men would act as strike breakers, many men participated in these strikes nevertheless. Uh, the course of history is the best test of practice for ideas, and it shows whether ideas are correct or not. The years 2019 and uh, 2020 were the most turbulent years in, in a very long time, with revolutionary uprisings across the globe. And in regard to this, I recently read a very enlightening article by Judith Butler. In February this year, she wrote an article for the German newspaper Die Zeit, um, using and completely distorting Hegel by talking about master and slave dialectics, she basically argues that she basically argues that we can't help that there is inequality in society, that we should just be nice to each other. Nevertheless, she takes Hegel to argue for a social partnership between capital and labor, basically. And my personal highlight is when she writes, "Of course," she, sa she says, "Of course, I don't say we live in revolutionary times. Perhaps we do without me noticing." So this is a quite good example of the role of queer theory and its philosophical basis uh, in reality, what kind of role it plays in reality. While legitimizing the oppressive present system, it is blind to the real struggles happening in society. I know that there are a number of people who sympathize with queer theory uh, and are also anti-capitalists. 20 minutes gone. Queer theory is, uh, is attractive to uh, some people, not least because it seems to give voice and vocabulary to the discrimination and personal desperation many people feel. However, as we have shown, and as Marie particularly explained in her contribution, queer theory doesn't explain oppression at all. Oppression cannot be explained out of personal identity. And neither our identity nor narratives are ultimately what oppresses us. Actually, I get very attentive and, and a bit careful when I hear the words identify as narrative and discourse. Because in 90% of the cases, there is some idealistic concept behind this. Queer theory, in fact, strengthened a very, uh, strengthens a very pessimistic outlook towards the world. Because it feeds off being different, never fitting in and having nothing in common with others, while at the same time accusing every person of oppressing others and reproducing power, fostering a feeling of permanent guilt, without offering a perspective of unity, struggle and revolution. As Marxists, we should make no concessions whatsoever to harmful and wrong idealist concepts. We must lead a real struggle against oppression and discrimination. And this misleading means leading a fight against capitalism. Marxism is the only method that systematically can explain the roots of oppression. 
And Marxists have meticulously studied the history of class struggle as well to draw lessons from it. We know what is needed in order for us to win and achieve freedom. So I want to urge all comrades who are not yet members of the IMT to join us and to fight together with us. Thank you. Thanks very much, Yola. I think it's been an excellent discussion. I've certainly learned a lot from it. We will now uh, take another break before the last session. We're finishing this session just a few minutes early. So I'd recommend that you use that extra time to go on well-read books online and browse the phenomenal range of books on Marxist philosophy, history, economics, and revolutionary action, especially the In Defense of Marxism magazine, in which we have an article on queer theory written by Yola. The final session of the day and of the, the whole of the International Marxist University will be on building the revolutionary party. And that will start at 5.30 British summertime. See you there. Enjoy the break.